So Money episode 48, Ask Farnoosh. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Happy weekend, everyone. Welcome back to So Money Ask Farnoosh Edition. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. How you doing? How's your weekend going? I am in Lancaster, Pennsylvania today visiting my in-laws. My son has just turned eight months and my in-laws have not seen him since the holidays. So it's really cute to see them react to him and him react to them. Um, Loving being here in Pennsylvania as well. It's so peaceful uh, compared to being in New York, which can be really, really hectic. So I'm very grateful for this escape this weekend and for spending some time with you. This is our chance to connect, right? All week you've been sending me in your questions and your thoughts about money and career and investing in life. And I'm happy to say uh, there are lots of questions to choose from. But before we begin, I'd like to kick off this Saturday episode with a kind review left on iTunes by a fan, a listener, Bill. Bill writes, Top quality personal finance podcast. Farnoosh has an engaging, non-judgmental approach delivered in a high quality format. Her comfortable interviewing style consistently draws thoughtful responses and insights from her guests. A recurring topic with her guests involves money memories from childhood. Yes, it does. That always elicits interesting stories and provides healthy food for thought for any parent raising kids. Check it out. Well, thank you so much, Bill. And for that, I'd like to gift you a free 15-minute money session with me where we can talk about whatever topic you want. Sounds like you're really digging being a parent and are curious about uh, raising money-savvy kids. Uh, Just Friday, I interviewed Ron Lieber of the New York Times, who came out with a great book recently called The Opposite of Spoiled. Do check out his book. It's a fantastic read. And so thank you very much, Bill. Just as a reminder to all of you, if you're interested in getting a free 15-minute money blitz with me, it's really simple. Just go onto iTunes, leave a review, and let me know by emailing me, farnoosh at somoneypodcast.com. And every week I draw a review, a reviewer, and announce the winner on the Saturday podcast. So uh, good luck with that, and I thank you in advance. So let's start with our question from Mary. Mary writes and she says, Farnoosh, which is better, paying off a 3.87% mortgage or otherwise using the cash to invest in something paying more percentage-wise? So Mary, I mean, mathematically speaking, purely mathematically, you're going to probably earn more percentage-wise by investing in the long run over a diversified set of asset classes and a a diverse set of investments. Uh, You know, I'm assuming that you're interested in investing uh, for the long run. You know, you're not looking at throwing darts at the market and day trading and uh, moving moving your assets around. But, you know, if you're looking for a strategic, long-term diversified approach, you know, historically, uh, the market has produced better returns than 3% over decades. And so if your intention is to save for, let's say, retirement, which for you might be you know, years and years and years from now, I think it might be wiser to use some of that cash, that extra cash that you have lying around, to start getting aggressive about your future. Because part of you know, being financially free is not just being financially free today. 
It's being financially free in your future. And sometimes that's so abstract. We we lose touch with that. We don't really see that as an immediate need, uh, but it is. And I think your 50-year-old self in the future, your 65-year-old self in the future will be thanking you and saying, thank you for using this extra cash to protect your future, my future. The mortgage is only 3.87%. That is really low for even in this environment of low interest rates. That's a really good interest rate. You know, I'd say if that is something that is psychologically a burden on for you, as for many people, they just don't like having a mortgage. And I get that. What you might want to do is use some of that cash and do a little bit of a hybrid approach. Use some of it to invest and then use some of it to make a 13th monthly payment every single year towards principal. So go ahead and pay your mortgage, but make an extra payment once a year strictly towards principal so you really knock down that balance. And over the long run, you'll probably save a lot in interest and you'll shorten the length of that mortgage. And in the meantime, you'll still get the tax advantage, right? We like to have uh, interest that we can deduct from our taxes. It means more of a refund potentially uh, come tax time. So you can still take advantage of that as well. It's a really good question. I think that if I were you and you were a little uh, vulnerable in the area of future financial security, uh, start looking at making some uh, investment choices, perhaps in your 401k and IRA, and maybe working with a planner to help you allocate that extra money that you've got to make it work best for you. So thank you very much, Mary. Elizabeth writes in and she says, my boyfriend and I have plans to live together within six months in New York City. Oh, I've been there. I have a well-paid full-time corporate job and he is starting a PhD program that will last about five years with a stipend that is significantly less than my salary. How should we split up the bills? Is there a benefit to entering a domestic partnership? So your first question is how should you split up the bills? Now, I've been there. Uh, my husband and I, before we got married, we lived together. I was making more. I had also been living in New York for uh, almost all my career, whereas he had just kind of moved to New York to be with me full time. And so I was far more accustomed to you know, the expensive life that is living in New York City. I think if you are in a relationship where there's an income disparity, a really big income disparity, like it sounds like with you, it will be once he gets into his PhD program and you'll be earning a good corporate salary. There are some considerations you can make. There are some ways you can systemize your finances to make sense for you. I talk about this a lot in my book, When She Makes More, where I cover how to essentially, your question, pay your bills together when there is a big income gap. And whether you're making more as the man or you're making more as the woman, I think the advice uh, is true all around. But I would say, I think for you, it might make sense to, while he's in his program, to cover the bills. You're the spender and then he is the saver. So he's making a stipend and while it may not be a lot month to month, over the course of five years, that stipend added up is going to be a significant amount of money. And I would advise, if this is, if I were you, this is what I would do. I would be the, I would take on the role of provider. As the top breadwinner in the, in the relationship at the given time, I would assume the, uh, you know, the, the, the joint costs. I would, I would cover the rent. I would cover food. I would cover gas, you know, and I would be reasonable about it. I wouldn't be, you know, <laughs> breaking the bank. I would be sure that I was being financially conscious all the way. And his responsibility primarily will be to save, to save that stipend in a joint account with your name and his name. 
because why not? You're paying for his everyday living right now, and he should be saving for your joint everyday living in the future. So open a joint account. I don't know. I hope this relationship lasts forever, and this is you know a permanent relationship for you. But in the event that it is not, having your name on that savings account will be important because you'll be uh, technically allowed 50% of it. And I think this is a fair deal. It's a fair trade-off. It's it's giving him a chance to provide in the future with his small stipend now that's going to be accumulated and for you to keep the lights on and the food on the table in the interim, in those five years while he's uh, earning his degree. And I would ask myself, would he do the same for me? If you were the one getting the PhD and he was the one making the good salary, do you think that he would make the same kind of trade-off? And if you think that he would, and if you can just ask him and say, you know, what do you think about this kind of an arrangement? Would you do this for me? And if there is that mutual, that mutual uh, appreciation and understanding and commitment, then I think this might be a good plan for you. But like I said, I, I cover a few different kinds of plans where there's income disparity in my book. So check it out, shameless plug. The paperback comes out in April with a lower price point. So if you wanted to wait for that, uh, you could always do that. But I think that would be what I would do, not knowing all of your circumstance, but just hearing that there is going to be this centrally, you know, you're going to make all the money and he's going to make a little bit. Over time, his money will accumulate to something very meaningful for you. And that could be money that you would maybe use towards uh, buying a house together or um, paying for your wedding. I don't know. Whatever you decide, it's it's a joint decision. And I think that will be a a really fair way to uh, manage the money in the relationship with this current income disparity. And then you also ask, is there a benefit to entering a domestic partnership as well? Uh, Well, from a purely financial standpoint, I think entering a domestic partnership or marriage uh, has its pros and cons. You know, the one con, of course, is that when you pool your incomes together and you file your taxes together, you may fall into a higher tax bracket and get hit with a bigger tax bill. But on the other hand, getting married can be beneficial when, for example, just one example, you know, you go to claim social security in retirement. If one of you has, over the course of your marriage, earned a, a lot more than the other spouse, then the lower earning spouse can claim spousal benefits based on the higher earning partner's income. Uh, and, and that can be as much as 50% of the top earning spouse's benefit once they reach uh, full social security age, which is about 66 or 67, depending on when you were born. So, uh, you know, we could talk about this for hours, you know, the, the financial benefits perhaps of getting married and the cons. But I think that um, if you don't get married, you want to make sure that you have good contracts in place to ensure that um, you know your expectations are clearly laid out in terms of how your finances are to be arranged. And if you own property together, if you have kids together, you're going to definitely want to get some legal assistance to make sure you have the right protections in place in the event that you know things don't work out. So just some things to think about. And thanks for your question. Leslie writes in, I am worried I am 59 and I have $100,000 saved for retirement due to being a single parent. I'm now saving 12% of my salary, which is about $73,000 per year. My company has a 5% match. I would like to retire at 66 or 68. What do I need to do to make this possible? All right, Leslie. Well, I'm happy to hear that you are contributing 12%. You're taking advantage of that full match that your company provides. Uh, 12% is good. I would say if you could do even more, do it. I think the fact is you're 59. Traditionally, people are retiring 65, 66, 67. So in the next 
six to seven years, you would ideally like to retire, as you say. But with $100,000 currently, you're gonna have to save a lot more, I think, in order to be able to stop working at that age and live a life that is not unlike the life you're living now. And so the first step, I would say, is to really figure out, get really real and raw with those numbers, figure out how much you anticipate really needing at 68 or 69. If you were to stop working entirely, how much would you need to have saved in a retirement account? And also factor in, of course, things like your social security payout, factor in um, any other kind of money that might be coming your way. And there are calculators online that can help you figure out the math. Go to choosetosave.org. It's a really robust calculator that takes into consideration things like, you know, what your savings rate is, how much you currently have in retirement, what your what your potential social security payout will be, what your expenses are likely to be, what's your mortgage, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, a few clicks later, you've got your number. And then from there, they help you to figure out what you have to do to kind of reverse engineer that to get to that number in terms of how much you need to save. To be totally honest with you, you know, $100,000 is good. It's not great. Um, if you want to completely stop working in 10 years or so, I would be say I would say realistically, you want to either delay retirement or if you do kind of retire from your current job at that age, to look at other ways to bring in money part-time, on the side, so that at least you have some income coming in every year to help with your necessities. So that's what I would say to you. Check out choosetosave.org. Let me know if you need more help. Thanks. JR asks, at the most basic level, where, how should I begin to invest? Well, I will just tell you what I did. You know, I, I got a job at 23 and uh, sat down with my HR rep to fill out some forms. And she did the hard sell on the 401k. Mary, I remember her very vividly. She said, you know, we have this really great 401k program at work. It allows you to invest for retirement. And we have a matching program, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, me, I, I started this account when I started here. I was your age. And now I have, you know, $50,000 saved. It's amazing because I couldn't have done this on my own. And I was like, okay, I'll do it. And so I did. I, I got automatically rolled in my company's 401k plan. Uh, separate to that, I opened up an individual retirement account. So I was effectively investing, right? Because these accounts give you access to investments, mutual funds, ETFs, index funds, stocks. Uh, but you're able to do it in a very strategic way that is managed, that is long-term, that comes with potentially a plan sponsor, a plan advisor, so you have resources to help you make decisions. It's just a really, uh, you know, careful way of investing that with the intention of investing for the long run. If you're looking for advice about where to, what stocks to buy and what brokerages to use and you know, how to set up your portfolio. I'm not the best resource for that, I'll be honest, but there are lots of books out there that can help you get started. Start with, you know, educating yourself and and following the market and learning as much as you can about industries and stocks and the way the market works and following the news. And not to say that this is going to make you into an expert investor, but I think it's at the very least the rudimentary education that you need if you want to really explore investing more aggressively by opening up a brokerage account and, and picking stocks. I don't do that. I have 
I have my index funds in my retirement accounts that are watched over by my financial advisor who's a fiduciary, and that's what I do. So I'm very boring when it comes to investing, but for me, boring is best. So good luck with your foray into investing and keep us posted. Thanks, JR. Trish says, I'm 44, just found out I have a $25,000 pension from a job when I was laid off back in 2002. They're offering me to roll over, cash out, or leave it. I have about $11,000 in credit card debt, half of which is at a 24.99% interest rate. I think I should roll over some and use some to pay off that debt. What do you think? Wow, aren't windfalls nice? <laughs> this is great. This is like a, you know, it's like a drop from the sky of, of money that you aren't expecting. You know, it's tempting to cash out, I will say, because you've got this debt and I'm sure it's keeping you up at night and you want nothing to do with it anymore. And now you feel like your par- your prayers have been answered with this surprise $25,000 pension. But I will remind you that when you withdraw this money, if when you cash out at this age before you reach 59 and a half, you will be hit with a early withdrawal penalty of 10% on top of the income tax that you'll have to pay. So that $25,000 cash out could only equate to, you know, 13,000. There's your debt. I mean, that's going to really just cover the credit card debt just by cashing out. It's not like you'll have much left over. So if you're able to stomach that and you already have retirement savings and you're doing well with retirement, then okay, cash out. I don't say this often. I don't recommend this often, but I do understand your debt pain. And I would say that since you weren't expecting this money, you were kind of maybe mapping out your financial future, not factoring this in. And and maybe if you were moving along hummingly with your financial plan and, oh, wait, I have also this $25,000 that I didn't know about. And I've got this $11,000 in debt with a really nasty interest rate. Hmm. You know, maybe this is the exception to the rule. You know, the rule is never cash out, but the rule here might not be, uh, the best for you because if you can get rid of this debt, it may then mean that you can take those debt payments that you're putting towards the debt now towards savings. So here's what I would say. If you're going to cash out and pay off that credit card debt, pretend that the debt still exists after you have paid it off in full. So whatever monthly payment you're putting towards debt right now, continue to set aside that money and funnel it into retirement so that effectively you are making a trade-off, a a relative trade-off, you know, and I I think that would be a smart thing for you to do is like pretend the debt is still there, still budget as if the debt is still there, but use that money instead of, of course, putting it towards the debt, towards your savings and do that for a couple of years, you know, to kind of make up for the fact that the fact that you hadn't transferred that $25,000 into retirement. I know it's a little counterintuitive. We always say don't cash out, but this was a windfall you weren't expecting and you do have debt and it might be the difference between getting ahead and staying behind. So good luck with that. Thanks so much for your question. And that is a wrap, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in for the Saturday edition of Ask Farnoosh. As always, if you'd like to send me a question, head over to somoneypodcast.com, click on Ask Farnoosh and ask away. And I tend to answer every single question that weekend or the following weekend. And if I happen to miss your question, just resend it. It's happened a couple times. You know, I'm only human. I sometimes miss the questions in my inbox, but I do make a, a really strong effort to get to everything. As a reminder, if you'd like to win a free 15-minute money session with me, leave a review on iTunes and let me know by emailing me, farnoosh at somoneypodcast.com, and I will, I will enter you in for the next drawing. 
Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. Have a great rest of your weekend, and I hope that your day is so money.